All right, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. Everyone, uh, how's your week going? Everyone's been going pretty well so far. We're halfway through. Uh, this is session four of the class, Flesh and Spirit, taught by uh, Mr. Dobbins, uh, Mr. Scarborough, and myself. Tonight we will be talking about God is a spirit, or God is spirit, and uh, the implications of that, what that means for us, uh, applicability-wise. We're going to go ahead and dive into that, but before we do, um, I'm going to ask Mr. Marshall here to lead us in an opening word of prayer, so we're going to do that before we get to the queue. Okay. So, uh, Jarrell did a very good job for the first two sessions defining these terms, spirit and flesh, giving us an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, that's something you always want to do is make sure you understand what you are going to be discussing and the nature of it. And that's something that we are going to continually be doing as well as we can. We're going to be getting into some theological themes. And um, when we do that, it can kind of get tough uh, to kind of flesh out and understand. But we're going to do our best. And I just want to make sure, uh, you know, that I'm not claiming to be an expert on any of this stuff. I don't think uh, either of the three of us teaching this are. Uh, but we are doing our best looking at the text and presenting it as uh, we see fit or as we see to the best of our understanding. So uh, then on Sunday, uh, Randy did a deeper look, a deeper understanding of spirits and flesh. So I feel like we do have a good idea of what we're talking about when we use those terms, spirit and the flesh. But there is a distinction that I, for my part, wanted to make because I feel like sometimes... We kind of categorically, sometimes subconsciously, can think of spirit as good, flesh as bad, as flesh being inherently evil, and spirit being the good one, or the holy one. But it's a little more nuanced if you look at the biblical view of both spirit and flesh, or the uh, physical and the spiritual. And one of the things that you will notice throughout the theme of the Bible is that creation is created by an eternal being, God and spirit. So that means that it has attributes of God. And when God creates the world in the first book of Genesis, he even deems it good. So it didn't start out that creation or physical, uh, physical world itself was bad. It wasn't until later in the fall of man, it was sin that made it so. Uh, on the other hand, you have Ephesians 2, I'm going to read a couple verses 3 through 7. Uh, in the Ephesian letter, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Pay attention to that there. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, <laughs> and satisfying its desires. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Though we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that's primarily what we're going to be talking about tonight, is the way that he makes those incomparable riches expressed to us. Um, we're going to be talking more about on Sunday what that means to us in our current time as Christians living in this world. But tonight we're going to do something a little different. Uh, we're going to be looking at the way that this was born out in the Old Testament. 
and the way he interacted with the Israelites. Uh, but I wanted to draw your attention to this. It says that there is a spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. So you have these, in the spiritual realm, you have this idea that there are good spirits and bad spirits. And we see Jesus interfacing with bad spirits or demons all throughout the New Testament. And it is possible to be living by the flesh and still doing the will or living by the wrong kind of spirit. So I just kind of want to make that distinction uh, make sure we're not categorizing two things uh, and simplifying it, because it is a little more nuanced than that. So, uh, moving on, I wanted to talk a little bit about God as spirit and the nature of God as spirit. That means that he has attributes and things of his character and his personality that are otherworldly or above us. And we're going to be looking at some of those tonight. And we're going to be trying to understand that even though God is eternal and uh, greater than us, he makes himself known in various ways. And we're going to be kind of looking at the ways that he uh, comes to present himself in an understandable nature through stories in the Old Testament. And I think it is important to understand God's nature because what you believe about God shapes what you believe about everything else. It shapes your entire worldview. There are people that don't believe in God, and they think that this makes them non-religious, or that they uh, don't have a governing set of principles, but that's not necessarily true, because unbelief in God just as strongly shapes the way that you are going to deal with the world and treat those in it. Uh, there's really no such thing as somebody who doesn't have a worldview shaped by belief. So it is important that we understand God and his spirit nature, because that's going to really uh, shape the way that we look and live our lives. Um, I'm going to look at a verse that talks about some of the attributes of God. This is 1 Timothy 1.17. It says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So you kind of have a list there of some of the things that God is. And we can kind of look at them, kind of break these down. So God is infinite, meaning he exists outside of time. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around this one because we live in such a linear fashion. Uh, but God existed before us indefinitely, and he is going to exist with us indefinitely. He's immortal. That means he exists outside the flesh. He doesn't have a physical body or uh, some sort of likeness the way that we do or think of it. And then he's also non-corporeal. This is a little different than immortal because I think of, we think of immortal as humans and lifespan. Uh, this means that he doesn't have any tangibility. There's nothing that we can see uh, or physically interface with that would give us the sense of God. And then it says that he's the only one. He's singular, meaning that there is just one God. We know that there are aspects of God that we call the Godhead or the Trinity. Um, these are part of God, but they are still composing one entity, uh, one deity, God. So uh, any questions or comments about anything thus far? Okay. We'll go ahead and continue. Uh, there's another verse I wanted to look at here. A great verse in Isaiah 64, verse 4, gives us a little more insight into God. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, 
No eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now this verse is important because it tells us not only what God is, but what God does. What God does is he works and he acts on the behalf of those who wait for him. Those who are loyal to him. Those who want him to do good for them. And that's what we're going to be exploring tonight. Something that's uh, interesting to look at here is that he points out since ancient times, or you can even read that at the beginning of time, up to this point in writing this, prophet Isaiah says, no one has heard, no one's perceived of a God who acts like this. God was very, very different, the God of Israel, Judaism, than any of the other gods in other cultures. Um, ancient cultures back then, you had Mesopotamia, then Egypt, later Babylon. What are some of the differences between the religions and the uh, worship practices of these civilizations as opposed to uh, Israel? What were some of the key differences? What would look different? Monotheism. That was probably the biggest one, right? Monotheism, the belief in one God, just like we talked about. These other um, civilizations and cultures were polytheistic. They believed in several gods, and they separated those out in various ways, and they attributed different aspects of nature and things of that um, to individual gods. And they would make um, images a lot of times in the shape of animals or things that we would recognize, <coughs> and they would worship those. And they would, instead of worshiping one supreme god, they would instead worship images of various countless other deities. And we see later that God takes issue with that. Great issue with that is that he issues a command to the Israelites not to have any graven images and that they're to have no other gods before him. Why do you think that would be the case? Not necessarily worshiping other gods, but why wouldn't God want an image of him worshipped? Any thoughts? He's not an image, he's just a spirit. Yeah, he has a spiritual nature. He's not supposed to be made into an image, into something recognizable that we can worship in that way. Let me ask you this, when you think of God, what animals or representations in nature come to mind? Just top of your head, if I say God or Jesus, uh, what are some animals you might think of? Lion, okay. Why necessarily a lion? It's the imagery we get from Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Okay, Lion of Judah, very good. Anything else? Spe specifically Jesus, there's one I'm thinking of. Dove. Lamb. Lamb, okay. So, dove. lion, lamb, dove, there we go. That one's associated more with the Holy Spirit. Um, what I'm getting at here is that a lion, a lamb, or a dove, <coughs> or any other animal you think of as representing one part of God, right? The lion represents his, you know, strength, his ferocity, his bravery, while then a lamb represents the timidity and the peaceful nature. But these are all aspects of one God that is way more than all of these things. So whenever you make an image or try to reduce God to an image, 
you are reducing him to something that is much, much, infinitely less than he actually is. If somebody took a picture of you and you were smiling and they showed this picture to all their friends and said, oh, this is my friend Chad, and they see Chad smiling, they might think, well, Chad is a happy guy. But Chad usually seems like a happy guy. But, you know, that's not always the case. Chad has bad days. Uh, Chad has times that are hard. Chad is capable of complex emotions, even though we may not have seen all of them. But um, the idea I'm trying to make is that God has so much more to him than anything that we can get at by making an image of him. That's not his intention. But let me ask you this. Is there an image of God currently that we have uh, here on earth? Are there images of God? <coughs> images are man-made. We're, we're created in the image of God. Okay. So I'm not talking necessarily about man-made image, but yes, humans are made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were made as image bearers of God. And by being fruitful and multiplying, they were multiplying the images of God. That is one of the primary things that we are to do, is to show God to other people through us. So another problem with making images is that not only are we reducing his role, we're reducing ours as well. So, <clears throat> uh, any thoughts or comments on any of that? Okay, we'll go ahead and move on. Uh, this is a quote by Paul from the uh, Areopagus where he's teaching in Acts 17.25. He mentions another thing about God. He says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Remember this verse because we're going to talk a little bit about it later towards the end. So God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything that he himself cannot provide. This is kind of trippy to think about, wrap your head around, because like I said, we live in a linear sequence. But God is an eternal being. That means he exists outside of time. He existed for eternity without us, just as we will exist in eternity with him. So you have a being who has always been, but created creation, and uh, that he's created people that he wants to have a relationship with, that have a definitive start. And that's kind of confusing, but uh, it says that he is not served by human hands if he doesn't need anything. That means there's a special significance to the creations of humans in particular, because he didn't need to have a relationship with us, but he wanted one. He chose to have one, and he chose to create somebody who was capable of serving him and also having the choice to serve him and delighting in that and also working for the people, working for those who are patient for him. Those other cultures and civilizations we talked about, their views of God were that if there is a God and he is almighty and infinite, then surely we are created to serve him. Surely our role is to serve and serve and serve as to not upset or anger or displease this ultimate God or God's plural. And that is how we will achieve peace in our lives, by not angering or upsetting the deities. That's not the way that God works, and that's what Isaiah was saying in that verse. 
is that God flips it around so that there is work required on our part. But we're not working for God's benefit. We're working to show God that we want him to work on our benefit. So we're going to go ahead and keep looking at um, the way that that is borne out in the Old Testament. There are covenants that God makes with people at uh, various intervals in the Old Testament. Does anyone know how many covenants there are in the Old Testament? Specific? Five. There's five covenants that he makes with five individuals. We'll put them up on the screen. Here's a rough timeline. You have two prehistoric covenants, one he made with Adam and Noah. Then you have the flood that kind of resets everything, except for Noah and his family. Then you have uh, what we come to know as the actual human timeline. The first time we're able to kind of trace it back. These aren't exact. Abraham lived somewhere from 2000 to 1800 BC, so I kind of split the difference with a lot of these. Uh, Abraham, Moses, David. So we're going to kind of go through and look at how God's relationship <coughs> changes. Well, not necessarily changes. It stays pretty consistent. But how God's relationship and the covenants he makes um, adapt as circumstances on earth and uh, human history uh, goes on. So, of course, the first one we know, Adam, the first man created. We know that story very well, Genesis 1. We're going to go back to cradle, cradle roll for a little bit here. Just a couple seconds, I promise. So, uh, day one, what, what's made first? Light. Light, okay. Light, darkness, day or night. Day two? Okay, there you go. You have the expanses above, the expanse below. And then day, day three? Okay. Dry land and uh, sea and vegetation. So what's really interesting here, uh, I do want to note, um, I don't hear this talk about a lot, but so you have kind of this split here. You have day one, two, and three, where he makes, he creates spaces out of the void, right? You have this formless void, and you have nothing um, but the Spirit of God hovering over. And so he's creating specific spaces here, day one, day two, day three. And then day four, he kind of doubles back, and he's going uh, to do something with those spaces. So like on day four, you see he goes back to uh, the light and the dark, and he puts in specific sources of them, right? And this is when the sun and the moon are created. Uh, then he kind of gathers the water in the heavens and separates that. So then you see more filling the space, um, defining the space. And then day six, that's when you have everything else made. You have the animals. He says, let us make Adam in our image, which is very different than any of the creation that's come before. How did he make everything up until Adam? What did he do? What was the process? What's that? Spoken, yeah. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and so forth. With Adam, he does something a little bit different. It seems that he is doing something that we can um, think of as a physical, physical activity, is that he actually takes the dust from the ground and breathes into Adam the what? We talked about this on Sunday. The breath. The breath, or the, the ruach, yeah, the, that Hebrew word. The spirit, 
So he gives Adam a spirit, and that makes Adam different than any of the other <coughs> creation. And you have um, the word Hebrew word tov for good, is that up until this point, he says everything that he's created is good. When Adam is created, it is very good, the Hebrew translation says, or the original text. So there is something special about Adam. There's something better about Adam. He has created a specific type of creature, someone whom he can have a relationship with, someone whom he can pour out his mercy to. And Adam, and then later Eve, are these two individuals which will set the tone for the rest of human history. So, um, I'll get there in a second. There's another point I wanted to make. So, we can think about the fact that Genesis has this account of heaven and earth um, being created, and you have certain questions that arise when you're reading this, but also certain questions that don't arise. And I think too often our natural curiosity gets the best of us, and we want to ask questions about Genesis 1 that the text isn't asking us to. I think the most common one is this debate, right, that's gone on for hundreds of years at this point. Are these literal days as we understand them? Is this thousands or millions of years that is created? I really don't think there's any point in discussing that or speculating. I mean, we don't even have our unit of measurement for a 24-hour day. That's not even made till day four. You got vegetation at day three without sunlight um, that's made the next day. How does that work? I don't know. Uh, the text isn't asking us to be asking those questions. There are some questions that it is asking us to, such as what is the nature of this creation? If you have an eternal being creating something finite, what does that look like? What is what is this new world, this earth? Is it spiritual? Is it physical? Is it both? What does it look like at this point? Any thoughts? I think if you look at the text, it appears that there is sort of this overlap, right? You have a world that is created, physical, but you have God around it. Um, I can kind of think of it this way, like you think we are, I, sometimes people say we have souls. I like to think of it more as we are souls. Uh, we are souls in a physical body encasement. The world at this point is kind of the opposite, right? It's a physical thing encased in a spiritual reality. God is over it and interacting with it. And Adam and Eve have a very real relationship with God. It says they walked with God. So at this point... There is a relationship happening there, but then sin brings about this schism or this tear. They are thrown out of the garden, and heaven moves away from earth. Not completely, but there is a drastic change here. And throughout the Old Testament, there are going to be times where God says, I want to get back with my people. I want to find a way to be able to continue to have a relationship. And there's going to be places and instances where heaven and earth move closer together and then farther away from each other. Uh, some instances I'm thinking of uh, in the Old Testament when something significant happens. Uh, there is a visitation by an angel uh, or something like that. This idea of holy ground. A lot of times people will make a, uh, what's the word, altar, sorry. An altar to commemorate the fact that something 
supernatural happened here. Something more than me happened. A very powerful experience I want to commemorate. Uh, what, when I'm thinking about the idea of God dwelling on the earth post-Garden of Eden, what is the main thing we think about? Where, not necessarily a location, but a place where that would be uh, true to the utmost. Where did God dwell most strongly? Tabernacle, yeah. So you have um, that room in the back of the tabernacle, right, as it's arranged. What was that room called? The Holy of Holies. So holy, in fact, that only one person was allowed to go in there one time a year. And what did you have between that room and the rest of the tabernacle? You had a curtain or a veil. It's kind of this idea that God's coming down and this heaven and earth are touching so close. The only thing between them at this point is this veil. As thick as that veil is, that is the closest that we've gotten to heaven and earth up till or since the Garden of Eden is the way you can kind of think about that. So you have creation here and then... Something of note is that at the end of all of these, you have there was night and then there was day, the first day, second day, yada, yada, yada. At the end of day six, or sorry, at the end of day seven, the day that God rests, it doesn't say and there was day and there was night. And there's a seventh day. And I would like to propose that um, the idea of God resting on the seventh day is perpetual. Is that we are still somewhat, you can think of it, as in that rest that God took. And it's not a physical rest as we think of it. It's not God folding his hands or lying down somewhere. It's God deciding that he has done the work to set in motion the relationship, and now he is going to begin work in the relationship. So throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see more blessings, more results of God's rest. Here I've listed some of the continued blessings of God's rest. The inspiration of abiding with Seth's offspring, Seth's offspring with his spirit. Um, the preservation of righteous Noah and his family. The call and promise made to Abraham. The deliverance of Israel from the Egyptian captivity and into the land of promise. Meeting with his people in worship. <clears throat> That's kind of what we were just talking about. The institute. Uh, yeah, the instituting of a tabernacle, later a temple, a way for God to once again find a way to meet his people, have a relationship with them. And then he later sustains a monarchy for his people. We know that as the three kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon. So this idea of God's rest is this idea that he wants to maintain a relationship and bless those uh, through his grace, those who are loyal and those who want to serve him and in turn be served by him. Any comments or questions? Okay. Uh, this is a verse, or we're going to look at a couple verses that I think kind of reinforce this idea. Uh, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. That's from Zephaniah 3.17. Another beautiful verse in Jeremiah 9.24. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So we have the things in which the Lord delights. 
He exercises kindness, but that's not all. Like we've been talking about, there's multiple components to God. There's justice and righteousness as well. To have one, you have to have all of it. You don't get to pick and choose the parts you like best. And that's really an important part of understanding the nature of God. Genesis 15:6. after God appears to Abraham and he gives him uh, what he is to do, Abraham is living in Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, practically Babylon, living at a time where monotheism is all but dead. Uh, you have Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, all those cultures. Their gods, lowercase g, are flourishing and thriving. People are worshiping gods like uh, Marduk and Tiamat and things like that all over the place. And God picks Abraham to restore and recover this monotheism of his fathers, Noah and Adam. And he says he's going to make him a great nation, but first he gives him some instructions. He basically gives him one instruction. He says, go, go to a place that I'm going to tell you about. I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. You don't get all the details. You just need to go. Uh, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him. He being God credits to him as righteousness. So you see this idea of God saying, I'm going to give you something to do. You've got to trust me. You're going to do this for me, but I'm doing something for you. I'm working for you. And this is just a revolutionary idea of God. This is brand new. There isn't anybody except this uh, Israelite Judaism view of God that thinks that God works like this. Uh, Paul later expands on this. Uh, we'll talk about this in just a second. Um, when we're going to look at the next person after Abraham is uh, Moses. And here. Uh, real quick, any comments or questions so far? Yeah, I'd like to ask about this. I, I've never noticed this before. You, uh -huh. you commented that the seventh day, it's not, doesn't have a beginning or an ending. Yeah, I, it doesn't, doesn't conclude the way the other ones I never had seen that, noticed that before. And you're suggesting that he is in perpetual rest. I am suggesting that the idea of um, rest is not the way that we think of it, but that he is done with the creation and now he is doing what he intended to do after making humans. Is that what he wants to do, what his rest is, God's rest is blessing his people and serving them, and that we get blessings and fruit um, here on earth serving God, but what is the ultimate reward? What is the ultimate rest is going to be with him, right? The Garden of Eden is the closest thing we have in our conception of heaven. That's what we're trying to get back to. So that is more in line with what I'm suggesting. Um, any other comments or questions? Okay. So Moses is a little bit of an interesting thing because now we have something called the law, right? We have the Ten Commandments. Now we have a list. It's not simply God saying, hey, I need you to trust me. Go with me, go with me, go with me. Now we have a bunch of rules and stuff we have to follow. So surely this is different than all the other covenants he made, right? Surely this isn't just, oh, 
you know, God wants to do stuff for us. This seems like now we've got to do a bunch of stuff for God. Paul says that's not the case. Later in Galatians, he says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. A lot of people were looking at the Ten Commandments as an end to the type of covenants that came before it. But that's not the case at all. This was very much a continuation. And I think the way um, that this is borne out kind of shows itself or shines through if you look at it in a bit of a historical context. And there's something, a little bit of a detour, but not really, because it is related to um, what we're talking about right here. But there's a little bit of something that I wanted to show you uh, historically, if you guys are interested in that. Um, something archaeological. Are you guys interested? Okay. So um, in the Old Testament, it mentions a group of people called the Hittites. Anyone remember the Hittites? Heard, at least heard of the Hittites. Uh, this was a very powerful people, uh, ancient superpower. But because of the fact that up until about 1887, in and around there, the Old Testament was the only uh, record, only mention of these people, the Hittites, they were dismissed by scholars and even kind of used by some biblical secular scholars to dismiss the Bible and say, well, if the Hittite people really did exist, there was no way they were as big as Egypt or there was no way they were as big as Judah. Um, if they existed at all, they were just kind of a fly or a bump on the map. Um, couldn't really have been as great as the Old Testament says. Well, in the late 1800s, they had this uh, archeological excavation and they found all of these things, all of these artifacts and these documents from these ancient Hittite uh, cities, not only does it turn out that the Hittites were very real, but they were every bit the superpower and um, the nation that the Old Testament made them out to be. And what's interesting is you found um, this treaty. It was a peace treaty between uh, the Hittite king and the Egyptian king at the time. And it is the earliest example we have of a peace treaty where two nations are basically acknowledging what we would call mutually assured destruction. The idea that, look, we can go to war and we can keep fighting each other and just kill each other's men until there's nothing left, but that's not going to be good for either of us. So I'll just stick with what I have and you stick with your, what you have and we're not going to fight. And they have this peace treaty they looked at and realized, yeah, the Hittites were a big deal. Um, but what they also found were these... Uh, other treaties. They were called uh, suzerain vassal treaties. And a suzerain was like a supreme ruler or a king uh, who was governing a bunch of other cities. So he's like the, the big one. And then you have these other representatives or ambassadors who are called vassal kings. And what would happen is as these suzerains would go in and set up these vassal cities in order to keep them in line or to keep things uh, in the hierarchy, they would make these treaties. And these uh, uh, suzerain vassal treaties of the Hittites all followed a certain format. They all did. It's really interesting. There's a template. We look at them and we see just a bunch of the same. Is you have a preamble, and you have a historical prologue. Uh, so the preamble would be, you know, uh, stating the suzerain, who he is, historical prologue, what he's done so far for the people, stipulations imposed on the vassal. Here's the do's and don'ts. Um, 
Then you have like attention to the treaty document where it's to be displayed uh, so people can consult it and see it. Witnesses to the treaty and then sanctions. So you have like these blessings and curses, all right? So I'm the suzerain, I'm setting you up as the vassal city. All you have to do is obey me, follow these rules. If you do, you get the blessings of me ruling over you. If you don't, you get the curses. Does this um, structure here remind you of anything, especially in regards to Moses? Does this look familiar? Anything come to mind? Moses goes on the mountain and gets Ten Commandments. Kind of like a path for this kind of to launch Sunday, our class title with God is in the have the temple now, then the temple with his people. What is the modern day temple? Where is the temple now? The church? We are. We are. The dwells in a temple made inside of us. The ways that he communes and how uh, man over the course of Israel's history these covenants with. Take a look at the way that that and how we got to the point inside of us. So that's all last time. Questions? I appreciate you all coming up.